from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Judge Dorothy Nelson on August 29, 2016. Dorothy was one of two women to graduate in 1953 from the University of California, Los Angeles School of Law. In 1969, Dorothy was the first woman dean of a major American law school, the University of Southern California Law School. It was Judge Nelson that first introduced the concept of mediation in the court system. This was unheard of back in the day, and it wasn't easy to make it happen. In 1987, she was instrumental in founding the Western Justice Center to develop creative programs to teach students, teachers, and members of the community ways to resolve conflict peacefully. She's still active in this organization to this day. I started the interview by asking Dorothy where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Los Angeles. I was born in a place called well, it was Palace Furries, but we moved to Los Angeles when I was in the second grade. It was a wonderful community. I ended up going to the same high school, L.A. High, that my mother had attended, that we had the same Latin teacher. It was a very lovely neighborhood. It was all white. Not until I went to high school did I have the privilege of associating with people of a different color or race. I had a wonderful, happy childhood. We had a big, old-fashioned house with a wonderful garden uh, outside. My father was a building contractor. My mother was a school teacher who taught everything from junior high to junior college. And I had an older sister, two and a half years older, who ended up as an elementary school teacher, a younger sister who unfortunately died at the age of 32 of a brain tumor. She was the athlete of the family and had three adorable little girls, Julie, Janice, and Jill. Mine were five and eight. And so after she died, she had moved very close to us and my older sister was across the street. Her children spent a great deal of time with my children, uh, one of whom was five and one was nine. And so, as our family expanded, we realized that we needed more room. And we decided in 1968 to move to Pasadena, California, because we found a wonderful old-fashioned house built in 1927 with lots of room on an acre of land. And when my children didn't want to move, we put in a swimming pool, and then they moved very fast. <laughs> It's great. It's great. And what was religious life like growing up? I was a member of the St. James Episcopal Church. I had four gold stars <laughs> for perfect attendance. But when I was confirmed at age 13, I asked the bishop, you know, why are the Christians supposed to be so special? What about the Hindus? What about the Zoroastrians? What about the Buddhists? Uh, what about the older religions? As far as I know, they all teach 
the same fatherhood of God, brotherhood of man, power of prayer, golden rule. He said, young lady, you will understand when you grow up. And I guess always in my mind, I could not conceive of a God who would create a religion that would be superior to any other religion, that whatever religion was created was created for the time in which the messenger appeared, but that all religions taught the same spiritual truth. And of course, that led to my accepting the Baha'i faith ultimately. And when was that, Dorothy? It was in law school in 1950. I was at the UCLA Law School in the second graduating class. Only 72 of us, two women out of the class, and one black. We were all invited to join a professional legal fraternity, and we did. And then six weeks later, the national of that organization in Chicago wrote and said, sorry, no women, no blacks. Mm. The president of my class was a very smart, charismatic man, but I didn't really think he had a serious thought in his head. And I went up to him. He called the class together and said, let's all resign and let's form the UCLA Law Society. And I said, Donald, that was a lovely thing to do, but frankly, whatever led you to do it? He's replied, oh, I've been going to Baha'i meetings in Westwood Village. I said, oh, that must be Buddhist. He said, no, 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 it must be Hindu. No, 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 I'd never heard of it. He said, it's the latest of the world's revealed religions. And it's affecting the way that my wife, who is a Mormon, who is concerned about the way in which blacks are treated, we've been going to Baha'i meetings. And Baha'is believe that all the messengers of God, as I said, teach the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, the power of prayer, the golden rule, but they differ in their social laws. And I, he said to me, would you like to come to what's called a Baha'i fireside? I said, what's that? Oh, you go and someone talks about the faith and you have refreshments and then you have questions and answers that you can ask about the faith. And I said, no, thank you, Donald. I'm very active in my own church. And my husband, a Presbyterian, is very active in his. Although I must say my husband, the church was <laughs> unhappy when he decided in law school because they expected him to become a minister. And he used to give the children a sermon at 9 o'clock in the Beverly Vista Presbyterian Church. He knew the Old Testament and the New Testament backwards and forwards. Where me, with my perfect attendance, I did not ever learn as much as he knew. Well, the president of my class and his wife did a sneaky thing. They weren't yet Baha'is. They invited us to dinner to play bridge, and we were starving law students living on hot dogs and macaroni and cheese, and they had a steak dinner. <laughs> well, as Donald began to pass out the cards, he said, say, there's a Baha'i fireside just a few blocks away. Would you like to go? Well, unfair question. <laughs> uh, we were free for the evening. We'd had a wonderful steak dinner. And my husband looked at me and I looked at him. And he said, I said, well, that would be very interesting. But as my husband Jim and I went to the car, 
he said to me, let's sit close to the door in <laughs> case it's weird. Well, obviously, it wasn't weird for us. I saw people of all backgrounds, my poli-sci professor, my, the woman who worked in the cafeteria who I saw, and we went to that one fireside, but we were law students. And then we went to the next fireside, which was supposed to start at 8 o'clock, started about 9 and ended about 12. But we had to go to law school the next day. Mm -hmm. And so we stopped going for a while. And then in the summer, Don and Barbara, Don, the president of my class, became a Baha'i the second year of law school. And he was very smart, not the very smartest in the class. But we talked about issues of women's rights, of racial integration. This was before Brown versus Board of Education. You could hear a pin drop in the room because the intensity of his remarks was not that it's just the right thing to do. This is the only thing to do is to integrate. The only thing to do is to recognize equality of women and men and the like. Well, I have to say, we kept going sporadically until we graduated from law school. And then Don and Barbara went to Puerto Rico for what Baha'is call pioneering. You go and you get a job. And then by the way in which you live your life, people ask you about why do you live your life this way? And he became a vice president for Pan American and later was sent all over the world. And we found that when Don and Barbara left the country, we began going to Baha'i Firesides because that was all we were talking about to our friends. You know, we had, when growing up, had been very active and we were swimming and dancing and badminton and Girl Scouts and Mariners and and all of those people, every time we would see our friends, that's all we talked about, the Baha'i faith. And we realized that this was something that basically after a study of comparative religion, which we did during those four years, and finding out surprising things, not about man-made additions to religions, but the basic religious truths were the same. The social laws differ. One time you couldn't eat pork because we didn't know how to scientifically protect ourselves. Now in the Baha'i faith, science and religion go hand in hand. You know, you could eat what you wish to eat and the like. So. Another thing, I was offered a job as one of the two women graduates in 1953 with a major law firm at, this is 1953, $350 a month. <laughs> but I'd been fortunate at the law school to have the former dean at the Harvard Law School, Roscoe Pound, who had a profound influence on me because he talked about it doesn't matter what laws are. If people don't have access to justice, the legal system won't work. And he recommended me for a research job to work on a project with two other young lawyers, graduates, and a law professor on how to improve the court system in Los Angeles County. I worked on that. Uh, my husband said, do what you want to do. We'll pay off our law school debts little by little. Everyone told me that I was crazy, I got over with the law firm, I was hurting women because I should go with the firm and so forth, but it turned out to be 
the best thing that I ever did. And I was asked to fill in for a law professor during that time, teaching a course in law reform, and I did. And I was also taking that course because I was getting my master's and I had to take 20 units. And working on this research project, I had met lots of judges, lots of lawyers. I was acquainted with the prison system. I was acquainted with district attorneys and public defenders. And I had a seminar of 20 and I started them in the drunk tank and took them all the way up to the state Supreme Court. And then we went on field trips every week. They interviewed judges and lawyers and litigants and prisoners. And they all went into the dean at the end of the course and said, hire her, hire her. Mm -hmm. This is a wonderful dean, Robert Kingsley, who we had no women on the faculty of the law school at the University of Southern California. And I was offered my first teaching job, which I never anticipated. I always felt not smart enough ever to assume that post, but I was in the right place at the right time. And I had built up in writing this book with this professor uh, an expertise in a number of fields. And so I became a Baha'i and found that one of the ways Baha'is around the world in hundreds of countries resolve disputes is through what is called consultation. Now, the, it's a close to a high form of mediation. I say a high form because the people who are engaged in it are committed to it as Baha'is. And so I added to my law course mediation. And one of the faculty meetings where I was the only woman, I heard a faculty member say, what's Dorothy teaching? <laughs> mediation, that's not law. And the response was, oh, she's just to make people love each other. <laughs> well, it gives me great satisfaction that it's the fastest movement in law reform and mm. the justices around the world. And so I have continued to do that. And even when I came on the United States Court of Appeals, uh, where I was appointed by President Carter, I might add that my husband was appointed to the state court by then Governor Reagan. And Baha'is don't belong to political parties because we don't belong to anything that doesn't include everybody. One of us appointed by a Republican, one by a Democrat, and we've always voted, but we're independent. When I got to the Court of Appeals, I said to our chief judge, why don't we have mediators in our court? It seems to me some of these cases that dealing with the environment would be better resolved in mediation as you probably know, people talk about what they think would be a just solution and why. And with a skilled mediator, they can come up with a solution to problems that, as a judge, I couldn't give that solution because the law doesn't permit it. Well, our wonderful Chief Judge Browning said, I don't know, Dorothy, why would somebody want to mediate when he has won below. I said he might lose with us. Well, we now have 10 full-time mediators who handled over a thousand cases last year with an 85% success rate. But this all started with this concept of consultation and mediation. Mm, that's an amazing story because mediation is now 
a known adjunct institution to the uh, justice system now. It certainly is. And when I came on the court, it certainly was not. Since I was an academic, I was put in charge of the education committee in our circuit, and we had educational seminars twice a year. I tried to introduce a seminar on mediation or alternative dispute resolution using, in addition to mediation, if that doesn't work, arbitration. And I couldn't get anyone to agree. And now we have whole sessions on mediation. And at the most recent session in Bozeman, Montana, where our whole court meets, once a year in some place, there's over 700 of us, bankruptcy judges, district judges, court of appeals judges like I am. And we have a wonderful Supreme Court justice to advise us, Justice Anthony Kennedy. Uh, and he fits in to this whole story as well. Because when I came to our courthouse in Pasadena, it was a restored hotel. And next door were 13 so-called bungalows that had sat there for 40 years. Bungalows for very wealthy who didn't find the hotel big enough. So I'd always wanted to create a justice center to promote mediation among children in the courts of the community. And I said to our chief judge, gee, President Reagan had said, sell all excess property. If we could acquire some of those bungalows without giving you the long, complicated story, I had to get the help of a congressman. I had to get the city of Pasadena to end up purchasing four of those bungalows. I'm glad we didn't get 13 because it's a full-time job. Mm. And we established the Western Justice Center to promote peaceful resolution of conflict, basically based on concepts of mediation. And we have wonderful programs for children, for the courts. We work with the courts and encouraging seminars on mediation and the community. We have worked in many, many schools. We're a collaborative group and we teach children how to mediate disputes and to deal with concepts such as bullying and racism. We have a peer mediation invitational where these children come and demonstrate mediation skills we have established all sorts of a safe school social network called Haven, an online community only for students actively engaged in creating safe and inclusive schools. And we have an institute website, which is a clearinghouse on programs and best practices in building safe and including schools, including establishing peer mediators. And the interesting part about all of this is at the end of the year, often if these children who are participating are mainly, mainly, although we've branched out considerably since 1985 when we started, underprivileged schools, the children would come to my courthouse at the end of the semester and I would take them into a big room and say, today we're going to litigate and mediate and then decide what works the best. Mm. Well, my favorite group is a group of little fourth graders, and I always feed everybody who comes. Food is 
in mediations as necessary, <laughs> in court meetings as necessary, in, in faculty meetings as necessary, but that's an yeah. aside. Well, my favorite group, a little group of fourth graders, and I said, you have a problem. A child gets an F, and she thinks she deserves at least a C. Child sues the teacher. So I had a fourth grade lawyer for the child, a fourth grade lawyer for the teacher, and the rest got to sit up in this big courtroom and be the judges. I said, call on your own experience. So it's really made up as they go along. Well, they've been taught when they address the court, may it please the court, said little Herbie, who was representing his client, Laura, who got the F. My client got an F because the teacher is a racist. First words out of his mouth. He had other arguments. George represented Mrs. Brown, the teacher. May it please the court, he said. My client, Mrs. Brown, cannot teach 28 children. If some come to school, don't do their homework, they fall asleep in class. Little Herbie gets up. May it please the court. My client falls asleep in class because she comes to school without breakfast. Well, the children voted. Guess who won? Herbie won. George lost. Then we take the podium away. Make him up. Hello, my name is Herbie. This is my client, Laura. Hello, my name is George. This is my client, Mrs. Brown. Herbie turns to Laura and said, Tell Mrs. Brown how you feel about that F. Laura, this is all make-believe again. I hate school. My parents are mad at me. I never want to go to school again. Then George says, Well, Mrs. Brown, you tell Laura how you feel. Little fourth grade representing Mrs. Brown says, Laura, dear, I love you, but I can't teach you if you don't do your homework. I can't teach you if you come to school late, and I certainly can't teach you if you fall asleep. Those fourth graders decided to teach after school and tutor Laura. She should be given the grade she didn't earn. Someone ought to write to PTA and say, kids are coming to school without breakfast. What pleased me most about this group they basically said, we're fourth graders. We can solve problems. They hugged each other at the end. They were so proud of what they had solved. We're trying to follow some of these kids, and we have high school kids who come in, of course, through the grades to see if learning these skills and how to relate to other people, how to help people solve conflict, affects their lives. Because honestly, when they first come and I give them lemonade and Girl Scout cookies, I say, someone tell me about one of your mediations, whether they're third graders, 10th graders, 11th graders, nine times out of 10, they'll say, I help my parents mediate. My parents were shouting and yelling at each other. And I said, hey, you want to mediate your disputes. And they say, what? Hmm. You have to listen to each other. You have to be courteous to each other. You have to ask the other person what they think is fair. And they have to listen while you say what is fair. And you both come up with a solution. It showed me that these kids are transferring these skills into their own lives and helping themselves and their families resolve conflict in the home as well as in the school. If the nations of the world could come together and consult on the problems of crime, of the environment, of health, 
housing. All of these things. In my faith, the Baha'i faith, it says there's enough in the world to give people housing, education, health care. But we must consult on how best to distribute all of the riches of the earth. Because we look at the earth, as Baha'u'llah said, the earth is but one country and mankind its citizens. So this has really affected my life, as you can tell. Yeah, I yeah. never planned to be a judge, but during my life as a an academic, my whole emphasis in teaching and in practice was on law reform. And when President Carter became president, he had his attorney general call me. Since I was the only woman dean of a major law school, every president appointed me to a commission. I served on the <laughs> board of the Air Force Academy. I served in many different corporations. And he said, we want you to bring your people back from the American Judicature Society and set up a merit system for selecting judges. So, I can't believe it. But we went back and set up teams around the country President Carter came in and said, I want those teams to seek out especially minorities and women. And so a few months later, vision governing our part of the country came to me and said, we'd like to put your name in. And I said, oh, I've been dean of the law school for 13 years. I was looking forward to going back to being an ordinary law professor and working on law reform projects. But let me go home and talk to my husband. My husband was a Superior Court judge. He said, you've been criticizing judges all your academic life. <laughs> Why don't you see what it's really like? So I put my name in. There were six openings in California for the Court of Appeals. The commission recommended five from Southern California, one from Northern California, the senator from Northern California, Senator Hayakawa, went down the list and saw me listed as an academic. Now, I had appeared in court. I had formed some corporations. I had appeared for friends and so forth. But honestly, I didn't like the adversary system. Mm -hmm. And so, Senator Hayakawa held up my name. But under merit selection, you didn't have to have both senators send in approval. Senator Kennedy, with whom I'd served on a commission, called and said, Dorothy, you got the vote. Come back and be sworn in. I went back and was sitting very nervously in the Justice Department when a messenger came from Senator Hayakawa. And he wishes to speak with you before the hearing. Senator Cranston was the other senator and said, don't worry. Senator Hayakawa won't say a word about you, but I will introduce you properly. Well, with my heart beating, I went into Senator Hayakawa's office and remembered that my mother, an English teacher, had used Senator Hayakawa's book on semantics in all of her English classes. I hmm. said, Senator Hayakawa, my mother will be glad that I met you because she's been using your books for years. She has. Well, sit down, young lady, he said, and let's talk. And so when I went in for my hearing before the Senate committee, Senator Hayakawa stood up and read my three-page resume word for word. It just shows if you get to know people, mm -hmm. and oftentimes the problems in the world 
are when people do not know and understand each other. And so I really locked out, as they say. Yeah. But when I was at USC, because I was a Baha'i, it did influence my work. And in a sense, we created the Western Center on Law and Poverty. We created the National Senior Citizen Center. We created a National Hispanic Center and so forth because as a Baha'i, I looked at all my brothers and sisters from all races, all economic classes, because the extremes of poverty and wealth are just horrendous. Poor people need help. It's not that they're not smart, they need opportunity. We've got the first 20 African-American students into our law school, I think it was 1969. I had to go to beauty parlors to talk to African-American women. They often appeared weekly about letting their smart son come to law school so he could help the rest of the family because they wanted their children to go to work right away. Well, we were able to recruit these students. I had many Supreme Court justices come to our school, one of whom was Thurgood Marshall. And his wife, Sissy, had gone to Baha'i school in Hawaii when she was young. So we were particular friends. Justice Marshall said to me, Dean, don't have a black degree and a white degree. We offer tutoring to any student, black or white, who wished to have it. 65% of our students wanted tutoring because first year of law school was quite an emotionally charged event with a little help everyone can manage to do it. But during that time, I also became involved with the Constitutional Rights Foundation, which is teaching young children about constitutional rights, about American history, and its influence on our justice system. Now, Sandra Day O'Connor has her own program going, primarily in the East. Our good friend, Justice Kennedy, Anthony Kennedy, who was my colleague on the Ninth Circuit, we were working with him on a curriculum. He started a program up in Sacramento, which I'm hoping to bring to the Western Justice Center sometime soon. But Justice Kennedy dedicated the first of our four bungalows of the Western Justice Center, and he has been a very strong supporter of education about American history and the Constitution. The Constitutional Rights Foundation puts out regular monthly newsletters on issues of the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, and the like. And we hope that this spreads throughout the country to everyone. But I was influenced in doing that because Mm -hmm. if young people, and hopefully a lot of them had to teach their own parents understand what the rule of law means in this country and understand the Equal Protection Clause, the Due Process Clause. They get involved with issues and they write papers about immigration and all of the amendments and the like. And this was strongly influenced by my feeling as a Baha'i that you must recognize the oneness of mankind But all of us, as members of civil society, have to understand the importance of the rule of law. Now the Western Justice Center is working 
with the constitutional rights foundation to create a curriculum that adds to the constitutional rights foundation's curriculum mediation with that we would have a complete package about litigation and mediation constitutional rights american history equal justice for all and all of those concepts and when kids get involved and discuss them it's amazing how they become passionate about the rights of others they become passionate about the rights of minorities who are women who are economically deprived and the like and i think that hopefully we're producing a very healthy number of citizens but also consultation mediation can pertain to adults we have a program called work it out at work which involves training people in your offices and the art of mediation or calling in trained mediators to resolve conflict human personnel committees and big big corporations and the like who often are very unsuccessful in dealing with a serious conflict in their company this can be resolved through consultation or mediation as well as problems of children and peer mediation and the like what was it that caused you to want to go into law in the first place when you were young when i was in the 11th grade i was a counselor for the culver Pops YMCA. It's actually where I met my husband to be. I had a boys club of 18 little eight-year-olds and so did he. But they were from underprivileged neighborhoods. And as I would try to intervene, because I had a passionate interest in solving the problems with these kids, I would run in to government officials or community officials that would say, well, the law says this, the law says that. And I went home and said to my family, I don't want to be a social worker. I'm going to be a lawyer because then I can change those laws that are affecting hundreds and thousands of citizens. I was a general major and undergraduate still trying to work around what I really wanted to be. And then I changed my major to political science as a junior. If I had to do it again, I would change it to an English major because people who want to go to law school ought to write a lot, ought to take courses that cause you to write a lot. Luckily, I had a number of those courses. But I really had a sense more than ever when I became a law student and became a Baha'i afterwards as a way to bring about justice in society and that you can do any number of things in representing the underrepresented, in bringing about changes in the law, you are more powerful as a lawyer than you are as a social worker, primarily because you're not working with one-on-one. You can represent thousands. You can affect hundreds of thousands by bringing about needed change in the law. So I am happy that I did it. I was very happy being a law teacher, but I did take some law cases on the side. But I'd find when I get calls from clients, I really didn't want to take them because I didn't enjoy doing the paperwork to form a corporation. But they had problems with contracts, with zoning laws, with all these other kinds of things. And I wanted to deal more directly with things that would bring about 
needed change in society. As a judge, I of course follow the law, but in our Constitution we have two wonderful provisions which talk about equal justice under the law, due process of law. I will follow always case precedent. But where there isn't case precedent, some judges would disagree with this, you are affected by your background and your beliefs on what is due process, what is equal justice under the law. And so, in some of my cases, some have been reversed, others have prevailed. Mm-hmm. I've been able to bring about what I consider some major changes, not only for the people who brought these lawsuits, but for the communities in which they live and the societies that surround them. Mm. If somebody wants to know more about the Western Justice Center, can they find that on the web? They sure can. www.westernjustice.org Okay. And what would they find on that website? They will find introduction to our programs, our purposes, our ABCs of conflict, our peer mediation, invitation, our compassion plays, our programs for creating bias-free classrooms. Uh, we have what we call safe school ambassadors, empowering leaders from the diverse groups and cliques on campus and equip them with nonviolent communication and intervention skills to stop bullying, to stop violence among their peers. Mm-hmm. And then they'll be introduced to our safe schools social network haven, the online community of those who are actively engaged and have problems on their campuses. Then we have an institute website. We have conference facilities, special events, and the like. All of those will appear on the web. Mm, Very good. And I have one last question, Dorothy. How do you think your career would have turned if you did not have the Baha'i faith? I would not have had been surrounded by a community of people dedicated to making the world better. I mean, I have a lot of good friends in law school, many of whom are very wealthy, many of whom are not happy, but they're, quote, a success in terms of civil society. They've made it their senior partner, they've done this and that, but my question to them is, are they happy? And I find great happiness in working with other people who are trying to make the world better. It's reinforcing, it's exhilarating, and you know, at, at, at our own home since 1961, we have had here, or someone sits in for us, Baha'i Fireside. I've seen their lives change for the better. I've seen happiness creep in. There are people doing all sorts of amazing things, but not finding true happiness. So. I suspect, you know, I had a wonderful family life, a very active parents in the community. I belonged a lot to organizations, mm. and I probably would have had a home where on Saturday night I might have had dinner and played bridge with people who are all white instead of having a room full of people every Wednesday night of people of all colors, all economic backgrounds, even from the homeless to the very wealthy and including a number of judges, I wouldn't have had that in my life. My Mm -hmm. life would have been much more limited. 
Baha'is are always taught to investigate truth of all kinds, and you can never retire as a Baha'i for trying to investigate life. But my life would have been a much more limited life. Mm. Well, Dorothy, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and to share your life story with us. Well, it's very kind of you to even ask me. You're a very good interviewer. You let me go on and on and on. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that interview with Judge Dorothy Nelson, a Baha'i and a leader in the movement of mediation to resolve conflict peacefully via the Western Justice Center. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Okay.
connected. Our children are alone because our children ain't connected to something higher than desires of society. Because they potentially could light the skies of piety. Mentally affected, they haven't been protected. And even if they see the light, there's no way to reflect it. The world could change if they were spiritual and thought. We simply need more than what we've got. of thy meadow, the roses of thy garden, these children are the plants of thy orchard, the flowers of thy meadow, the roses of thy garden. Let thy rain fall upon them, let the sun of reality shine upon them, let thy breeze refresh them in order that they may yeah. be trained. Yeah, yeah. Grow and develop and appear in the most beauty the education of our children is a duty and so we gotta do it right because they could be the darkness or they could be the light every soul is a mind that's rich rich in potential it needs to release so it's divine education we need to reveal the gems that build peace of the meadow, the roses of the garden, these children are the plants of the orchard, the flowers of the meadow, the roses of the garden.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.